Welcome to Old Testament in Faith, part of the In Faith series of podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and this week we're back in Genesis 3, focusing mostly on sin and especially temptation. Looks like we might be here for a while, so settle back and roll down a window. It should be a fun road trip. Let's get to it. So a couple things for this week's update. First, on the creative side, I'm nearing the end of the first week of full-time creative projects and having a lot of fun with especially recording the audio version of By Ways Unseen. It's turning out to take a lot longer to edit than I hoped, but still making progress on that, making progress on book four, and everything is just going pretty well. And I wanted to also uh, mention here that I was kind of glad that I was able to take the time off last summer from this podcast. I didn't necessarily need the whole time off, but I I know at the end there, I was kind of rushing through the third chapter of Genesis, and I was trying to do the entire chapter in one episode, and I could tell that I wasn't getting as deep into the scripture as I wanted to. So it was kind of nice that you know towards the end of the season with the Metro Parks and starting to get my mind back onto you know restarting this podcast, that I was able to kind of take the time and say, all right, I'm going to do this right. I'm going to take my time. I'm not going to rush through, just trying to get a chapter at once. Look for that moving forward. Sort of a refocus on the purpose and intent of Old Testament and faith is not just to get through it. You should never approach the Bible with the attitude of just getting through it. But we're going to take as long as it takes. Um, if I need to take more time off again this summer, you know, that's what will happen. I hope it doesn't. I'm hoping to be able to continue this one way or another. At the end of all of it, when I finally get to you know the end of Malachi, I want to feel like you know I took as much time as I needed, and we were able to really dig in and see why the Old Testament is so relevant to today. And then one last thing before I get into the topic, you know, as I'm recording this, we just had the protests in Washington D.C., and obviously a lot of thoughts around that. Rather than taking the time to do it here. Or kind of you know canceling this episode in order to focus on that. I will do a blog post that will come out tomorrow. So for you guys listening, it should be out on my website. I intend to publish it Thursday morning. Uh, if not then, then it'll be up Friday morning. So if you haven't been to the website yet to read it, go check it out. I'm not really not really on board with what I've been seeing in America, but that's kind of the point. I won't say anymore. Let's let's get into the message for today. And just know that, that that blog post is there if you want to go and, and take a look at it and see what is going through my mind. With all that behind us, let's dive straight into today's passages and see what's in store for us. As I said, today we're going to be focusing on sin and temptation. As we'll see, temptations haven't really changed since the very first one way back in the Garden of Eden. We like to think that our struggles are unique, and sometimes if we're really fighting it, we like to think no one else can understand just how great the pressure to sin on us is. The Apostle Paul warns us against thinking that in 1 Corinthians 10.13. As we'll see, all our temptations end up coming down to one issue. For now, let's start reading Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, our first note. See how Satan comes to the woman. But let's recall chapter 2, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it you will certainly die. Then in verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. 
So Eve was not yet around when God gave the command, at least not as the story is told to us. Adam would have had to relay the information to her unless God came back and repeated his command, but we're not told that he does that. But here's an important point we can make, and one that is not hard to find anecdotal evidence to the truth of it. If all you do is parrot what someone else taught you, Satan will find a way to trip you up. In our Christian walk, it is critical to successfully handling Satan's lies that we figure out what we personally believe and have the words straight from God to back it up, not just what someone told us. Satan has been playing that game since the very beginning, and he's very good at it. I discovered that when I first left home and joined the army. My buddies there would ask something, I'd give the answer I had learned primarily from my mom, then they'd question that, and I'd be stuck. I had never questioned it. I just believed her when she told me. She's my mom, after all. Now, let me take a quick moment to say, when Jesus says we must accept the kingdom of heaven as a little child, this, I believe, is what he's talking about. We need to trust our Heavenly Father when he says something with the same devotion as I trusted my mom. And when Satan questions us on it, we don't stop and wonder whether we should trust God or not. But we'll get back to that in a little bit. As another note, I think it's also important to point out that Satan didn't come to the woman just because she was a woman. We've talked in earlier episodes about the concept of women being the weaker vessel, and why that's mostly rubbish, at least the way we traditionally think of what that means, and that's in episode 22 of Writing in Faith, and I encourage you to go take a listen. But Satan more likely came to her because, as we've just noted, she had the word from Adam instead of from God. We'll see in a minute another piece of evidence for this idea. So far, in verse 1, we see that Satan first finds a weak point, in this case, asking Eve instead of Adam what it was God said. The second thing he did here was ask a very nonspecific question. Notice he didn't ask, did God say you couldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No, he just asked, did God say you couldn't eat from any tree? Well, of course God didn't say that, but in her response, Eve opens herself up to a weakness that Satan can exploit. Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now, let's jump again back to chapter 2, because is that what God said? Check it out, verse 17. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. In God's command to Adam, he said nothing about where it was. So again, either that's what Adam told Eve, or perhaps he only showed her where it was. But in this dire game of telephone, the connection is already beginning to get garbled. Then she adds on to God's command. You must not touch it. Again, not what God said. Sometimes we feel safer by adding layers to what God has said. Instead of just not eating it, we stay away from it too. Try not to look at it. Don't think about the tree because you'll die. Then all Satan has to do is get you to break your rule and in your mind you will have committed the sin. And if you've committed the sin by breaking your rule, then you may as well go the rest of the way and break God's rule too. Check out Colossians chapter 2 verses 20 through 23. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use. Do you understand that? Anything we can handle or use, taste or touch, are all material things that are temporary, destined to perish, Paul says, of no eternal value or significance whatsoever. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 15, 11, It's not what goes into the body that defiles a person, but what comes out. Back to Colossians really quick. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, 
but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is the Puritan's folly. If we just restrict everyone down to the littlest detail, make sure there exists nothing that might lure the eye, we'll be fine. But Paul says such regulations appear wise, but it is self-imposed worship instead of an honest and joyful reaction to the awesome goodness of God. It is false humility because it still does not submit to God to recognize one's true place in relationship to the Father and the sanctification that he works in you. It still sets the self up as God, able to remain sinless by our own power instead of his, and it is mere harsh treatment of the body, denying itself any joy that God provides for us here on earth. And ultimately, such strict adherence to such regulations does absolutely nothing to restrain sensual indulgence. It is our hearts and minds that need to be changed, need to be renewed, not our bodies. The body is perishing too. We strike a blow to it, as Paul does, only so that we are not slaves to it, not to try to make the flesh sinless. It will not be perfected ever. We cannot make it holy, we can only make it not our master. If we must hide every temptation from our bodies for fear of falling into sin, then we are still slaves to our bodies. As young Christians, when we're still very early in the process of renewing our mind, it may be necessary to hide ourselves from many temptations. And there are some temptations, true, especially those that have mastered us for most of our lives, that we are probably best served by hiding from it as much as possible for as long as possible. What we cannot do is hide ourselves from every temptation, ever. Instead, we must grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, renewing our minds from its old way of thinking to the new. Eve's knowledge was flawed, and Satan now knows it. Genesis 2, verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Almost every temptation we will ever face is this one. Do this thing, and you will be like God. Powerful, in control, master of your fate. You won't die, you'll be stronger. You'll know more and understand more and be better. This, I will argue, is the basis of every single temptation you face, ever. The temptation to reject God and set the self up as true master and Lord, to obey ourselves rather than him. More in a bit. Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Stop there. Let's go back real quick to chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So, in basic appearance, this tree was no different than any of the others. It did not appear better or worse, for all the trees were pleasing to the eye and good for food. But what has Satan done? He has imbued it through his lie with something desirable that nothing else in the garden promises to give. This is another of his supreme tricks. Don't worry about the fact that your house is adequately sized for your needs, that your car transports you where you need to go, that your food nourishes you and gives you strength to complete your tasks, that your spouse loves you and cares for you despite your shenanigans. Pay no attention to how God has provided for you everything you need. Because this here, the thing he told you not to have, it may not really appear to be better, but I promise you, you'll be happier, smarter, cooler, more accepted, more successful. Now it's a thing not just pleasing to the eye and good for its use, but also for gaining fill-in-the-blank that you don't actually need, but Satan makes you think you do. Satan is never promised to be doing a new thing. He can pull the same tricks over and over and over, and our sinful flesh like an idiot wants to chase those tricks over and over and over. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. 
She also gave some to her husband, who is with her, and he ate it. Common interpretation is that Adam was literally right with her this whole time, apparently doing nothing. Knowing men, he was probably just staring at this bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, without realizing his responsibility to his wife to be a helper, maybe just thinking about what they might do later that night after God walked with them in the cool of the evening. So as much as we might like to blame Eve for sin entering the world, Adam was equally responsible. And in fact, Paul, in both Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, makes no mention of Eve and lays all the blame solely on Adam and Adam's sin, and especially for him, since he was the one to whom God gave the command not to eat of the fruit. Now, we're going to wait, like I said, until next episode to talk about the fallout of sin, because that's a very deep and important work. And as I mentioned in the update, I don't want to rush that. Instead, I want to spend some time developing the idea of what sin is, and finish by giving you an image that hopefully will help you next time temptation comes around. Recognizing, of course, that I say this not as one who doesn't sin, and who hasn't found perfection through using this image. But I do think this was the mindset of Christ, and what allowed him to remain sinless during his time here on earth. So first, let's dive a little deeper into the idea that temptation is always to make ourselves God, instead of God. This might actually be fairly simple. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. Paul here is talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols. We can use it to apply to any act that is not inherently sinful in and of itself. He earlier asserts his freedom in Christ to eat anything. As Jesus said, it's not what goes into us that defiles us, but what comes out. But what Paul is cautioning is not to use that freedom to cause others to sin. And so he makes a broad statement at the end here as to how we should consider our freedom and others' freedom and conscience in Christ. And I'm going to read this in two versions. First, the NIV. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now, I love the Amplified Bible, Classic Edition, here because it draws this out amazingly well. But the man who has doubts, misgivings, and uneasy conscience about eating, and then eats, perhaps because of you, stands condemned before God because he is not true to his convictions and he does not act from faith. For whatever does not originate and proceed from faith is sin. Whatever is done without a conviction of its approval by God is sinful. What a statement. Because that statement encompasses not just deeds that are perceived as bad, right? It doesn't say bad deeds that don't proceed from faith. It says whatever. And I believe it. So this means that even the most saintly, philanthropic, life-saving deed, if not done with a conviction of its approval by God, is sinful. Can you begin to understand why it doesn't matter how quote-unquote good a person is? We hear that all the time, don't we? But they're such a good person. Perhaps what they do is beneficial to society, or at the very least is certainly not obviously hurtful to society or to a person. But at the judgment seat of God, it first comes down to your conviction of approval by God. Now, after that, God will still reveal to you whether he actually approved of it or not. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. If anyone builds on this foundation, that is the foundation of Christ, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. The problem for us here in the world is we won't necessarily know that until that day, not even for our own deeds. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? But it is God who will judge the intentions of the heart. So in all this, I want to impress home several things. First, sin is anything, 
not just actions, but beliefs and thoughts that we continue to entertain, that sets us up as God and Lord. Remember, it is not a sin to be tempted. It is not a sin for a stray thought that we know is wrong. The sin in our thoughts is when that stray one comes along and we begin to offer it a home, invite it in for a drink, ask about its health and welfare, how its family is doing. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. And do not give the devil a foothold. Because in any of these things, thoughts, beliefs, actions, if they are based on our own logic or rationalization, based on whether people will approve of us or not, we are rejecting the lordship of God who says in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And to do so is automatically to make ourselves Lord. If it is not done in response to faith in God, the only thing left is faith in ourselves. Even if we say, no, it's in faith of my pastor who told me to live this way. And if your pastor is truly speaking for God, then we might be okay. In a sense, your faith is still in God to have gifted your pastor to teach and minister and given him this particular word. But to blanket statements say, in faith of my pastor, we are instructed to submit to the ruling authorities in Romans 13, verse 5, and 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. But we're also cautioned in Psalm 146, verse 3, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings, who cannot save. When the death of Jesus tore the veil of the temple in Matthew 27, 51, he was removing the barrier that had been put up between God and man since Exodus a barrier that only permitted certain qualified individuals at only certain times of the year and still with a threat of death if they entered inappropriately. Once the veil was torn, that barrier between all believers and God's throne room was gone. Hebrews 4 verse 16, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Jesus, in a moment, I believe, of deep despair and longing, said in Luke 13 verse 34, and this is the Phillips translation because I love the wording. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you murder the prophets and stone the messengers that are sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children round me like a bird gathering her brood together under her wings, but you would never have it. The NIV says you are not willing, which is kind of sanitary. The CEV says boldly, but you didn't want that. Jesus still longs to gather you to him, right next to him, close to him where he can shelter you and protect you. But when you put up another veil, whether that's a parent, a mentor, or a priest, you still don't want that closeness to Jesus that he desperately wants. Because when we do that, we are putting faith in that veil instead of in God. And that is sin that separates us from him as surely as the physical veil did. So it is not God who rejects us, it is we who reject God. Still don't believe me? Check out John 5 verses 39 through 40. Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Even the Holy Bible is not a replacement for a relationship with Jesus. So I say again with Paul, anything that does not proceed from faith in God with full conviction that he is approving what you think, believe, or say is sin. Now, as I've said, we may find out later that we were wrong. That's okay. Romans 14, verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. I believe this is part of God knowing our hearts and minds. Our deepest desire can still be to please God, but to go astray for a time through misunderstanding, because we are still trapped in a sinful body, no matter how much we renew our minds according to Romans 12, 1. But as soon as understanding comes, you will be responsible for it. To reject your own lordship in that area accept the lordship of Christ and God, and correct your disobedience. Until you do that, you are continuing in sin.
I want to leave you today with a little illustration, a mental image that hopefully will help. And it actually derives from a scripture, which is always good. We'll get to what scripture that is in a moment. But first, some things to imagine, to set yourself in a particular place in your life. I want you first to imagine your ideal place to live. Maybe it's on some white sand beach, a wide, warm ocean at your doorstep. For me, it's the mountains. I love the crisp, cold mornings giving way to sunny, temperate afternoons, the mountains grander than any cathedral. Maybe for some, it's rolling farmland or a multi-thousand-acre ranch. Maybe it's the tall, man-made spires of a city, bustling and full of life. Whatever the location is for you, it is where you feel at peace. Your home is exactly the way you want it. Maybe for you, it's pulled straight from the cover of Better Homes and Gardens. For others, it might be the consummate Ikea, an artist's loft, a tiny home, a million-dollar mansion. It's decorated how you see it in your mind's eye, and every room is optimized to you, to your aesthetic, somewhere you can find solitude or vibrant community. I even want your setting to have your perfect weather, bright, sunny, hot, Overcast in autumn, maybe you love a thunderstorm for how safe you feel inside your home as the weather rages outside. It's your perfect time of year. Spring is near and things are blooming, or summer is here, inviting you outside and thinking of lemonade, golf, baseball, kids playing in a manicured lawn, manicured, of course, by someone else, unless you've gotten a new lawnmower that you're eager to try out, or fall is in the air, pumpkin spice lattes, Halloween, Thanksgiving, visiting with family and friends, but without the stress of trying to make everyone happy. Or maybe we're deep in winter, Christmas is in the air, the sense of miracles near at hand. Whatever season it is, it's your ideal of the season, what you wish it could be every year. You're in the place you dream of living, it's your favorite season, you have your dream car in the perfect color, it has no mechanical issues, you can get in and go anytime you want. In your relationships, you have your ideal spouse. For now, let's not worry about whether your ideal is realistic or even safe, we can deal with that later. Just for now, you have a husband or wife, or don't have one. That is, deep down, what you wish you had in a spouse, or don't, guilt-free. You have a group of friends, or don't, who you look forward to seeing. You get to hang out as if, when you think it, they appear, and you all do the things that make you happy and full of joy. You have your dream job, with coworkers that make you feel as much at home at work as you do at home. You all respect and value the other, the work you do is important, and you're good at it. And any time you want to take off, you can take. But, if you're honest, you love the work so much that you don't mind doing it, and your other relationships don't suffer for the time you spend doing it. And let's imagine you don't need money. Someone left you $5 million in a savings account, and you live off the interest. Whatever this ideal is, I want you to imagine something that is technically feasible in this life, as if you could take the best moment you've already lived, and it becomes your almost perpetual reality. That really good day at work happens nearly every day. That place you've visited or lived in that day that was the happiest and best of your life so far is where you live and experience almost every day. The best night you've spent with friends happens more often than not. The best day you've had with your spouse is your nearly daily experience. That time you caught yourself not worrying about money, that you had exactly what you needed when you needed it, is your constant reality. Now, if you got it, I want you to think of something else. I want you to think of that one day, blazingly hot outside, has been for a week. You open the garbage can to drop in the latest bag of trash, and that smell smacks you like Mike Tyson. You know the one. There's probably some raw meat in there, some fruit that's been rotting for almost a week, some other things that you don't even know what's making the smell, but it is the worst smell ever. And you have no idea how it got there, but it's been baking in that black garbage bin for a week, and you barely keep from throwing up. We know that our good deeds here on earth are building up for us an eternal reward. What we don't yet know is exactly what that reward will be. But here's what we do know. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ, Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 8. That perfect life you imagined is like that horrible garbage you imagined when compared to what waits for us in heaven. Every time you choose the earthly thing in favor of the heavenly thing, you're choosing that rancid trash in favor of your ideal life. Satan, we saw in our Genesis passages earlier, is very good at spinning that trash into gold for our earthly flesh. He can call our attention to how good it looks to our physical eyes, how good it will taste to our physical tongue, and how beneficial it will be to our physical ego. But when we look at what he offers with spiritual eyes, taste it with a spiritual tongue, and consider it with a spiritual mind and heart, it will fall disgustingly short. I hope that image helps you next time you're visited in your Eden by a serpent. Next week, we'll probably be developing this idea a little bit further as we look at the consequences of Adam and Eve's decision. We might get to the good and hopeful part, or we might end up wallowing in despair for a week. Good news is awesome, and I'm excited to get to it, but I think sometimes it does us good to rest a moment in a place where we feel deep in our bones the horrible and horrific thing that is sin. But we'll see. Join me again next week, and until then, keep the faith and keep it old school.